Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In April of 1992, a young Jewish mother named Shana Fima stormed into the NYPD's 66th precinct. She was inconsolable, frantic, and full of rage. According to Shauna, her 13-year-old son, Shai, had gone missing. She was convinced he had been kidnapped. Only a couple of months ago, Shai had been a normal New Jersey teenager. He was interested in girls, spent his free time playing video games, and enjoyed going to the mall with his friends. But all that changed when Shauna brought Shai to Lev Tahor Yeshiva, a religious school, to receive instruction for his impending bar mitzvah. The boy she knew was transformed, not only spiritually, but physically. Suddenly, his head was shaved, save for peyote or side curls. Now, as she stood in the 66th precinct, Shauna was convinced her son had been abducted by the leader of the yeshiva. He was a charming, electric, persuasive man, and some accused him of brainwashing his followers. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Helbrons, and soon there would be a mountain of accusations against him. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just stream Cults for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the ultra-Orthodox Jewish cult known as Lev Tahor, led by Rabbi Shlomo Helbrons. We'll explore the cult's origins and its leader's background. Next week, we'll examine the shocking crimes Lev Tahor has allegedly committed and what the future might hold for this dangerous sect. Shlomo Helbrons was born Erez Shlomo Elbarns on November 5, 1962, in Jerusalem, Israel. His parents, Pinhas and Yoheved Elbarns, were secular or non-practicing Jews. Years earlier, the Elbarns participated in a Zionist youth movement, which advocated for social change through education. The group works towards the return and protection of the Jewish nation in Israel. The Elbarns later enlisted as part of the Israel Defense Forces and got married while serving together at Kibbutz Holda in central Israel. Helbrons was their only child, and growing up without any siblings likely influenced his early development. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. A recent study from researchers at Southwest University in Chongqing, China, found that single children scored lower on agreeableness than their counterparts with siblings. Agreeableness is seen as a measure of sociability, empathy, and connection to others. If Helbrons was less agreeable than most of his peers, he may have had an especially difficult time living in the densely populated neighborhood of Kiryat Yovel. This low-income area of southwest Jerusalem was established in 1952 as a safe haven for Jewish refugees from surrounding Arab countries. Living in an impoverished household as a child likely also shaped Helbrons. According to Chirag Mittal of the American Psychological Association, growing up poor can lead to a low sense of control over one's circumstances. As a result, Helbrons may have searched for control by escaping into vivid fantasies. His childhood peers described Helbrons as a curious boy with an active imagination. During summer vacation, he often played cowboys and Indians in the local park with his friend, future filmmaker Yoad Ben Yosef. As a child, Helbrons also loved nature and animals. He had a cat named Cleopatra, kept chickens in his parents' yard, and spent hours hiking the hills surrounding their neighborhood. Helbrons was also a distinguished student, accepted into a class for the gifted. He was popular with his classmates and had a strong moral compass. His mother, Yoheved, was called to Helbron's school several times because her son was compelled to defend other classmates when they were bullied, sometimes ending up in fistfights in the process. Nevertheless, Helbron's continued to do well in school into his teenage years. In 1975, when he was 13, he received an assignment to research ultra-Orthodox Jews. He visited the Satmar Hasidim sect in Jerusalem, 
one of the largest Hasidic groups in the world. Hasidic Judaism is an orthodox spiritual revivalist movement that began in the 18th century in Eastern Europe. Its followers use the Jewish mystical tradition to achieve a direct experience of God through prayer and other rituals. The Satmar are also anti-Zionist. They believe that Israel should not belong to the Jewish people until the arrival of their Messiah. The community was welcoming to Helbrons. After years of secular living, the experience sparked an interest in religion. He later said, I was just curious to know why I'm alive and why the world exists. I wanted to understand what it all meant. This hunger for meaning led Helbrons to spend countless hours in the school library. He even got locked in there a couple of times after classes were dismissed at the end of the day and the janitor had to let him out. Helbron's religious study was further encouraged when he found a kindred spirit in Yosef Yagen. Yosef was a young Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox Jew, who Helbron's met through relatives. But Helbron's parents didn't approve of his newfound connection with conservative religion. Yohevid said, it went against our whole outlook. They forbid him from attending the synagogue, but he continued to study in secret. While enrolled at Denmark High School in 1976, Helbrons was mentored by his history professor, Dr. Abraham Fuchs, who was a practicing Jew. Noticing Helbrons' interest in religion, Fuchs invited his pupil to a Friday night gathering at a local yeshiva. Helbrons felt like he was part of a community now, and he didn't want to leave it. But when he approached his parents about transferring out of his secular school, they refused. In retaliation, he ran away from home and hid out in several Haradi yeshivas. On two separate occasions, his parents reported him missing to the police. In 1977, 15-year-old Helbrons transferred to Merkaz Harav, a yeshiva in Jerusalem. He was now legally considered an adult and his parents had no say in what he chose to do. Throughout the rest of his youth, he continued to study at yeshivas all around Jerusalem. His classmates in the yeshivas considered Helbron's intelligent. He digested the Torah quickly and effortlessly, despite being a newcomer to the text. He was also naturally gifted at teaching and successful at leading his peers into the faith. Helbrons eventually joined the Satmar sect, which he had originally visited for the school research assignment, and adopted their anti-Zionist views, believing that Israel shouldn't belong to the Jews until their Messiah arrives and delivers their political and spiritual redemption. According to Satmar beliefs, at the time of the Messiah's arrival, what is known as Jerusalem will be physically destroyed and subsequently replaced by a heavenly city. Shortly after joining the Satmar's sect, Helbrons adopted the name Shlomo. His given name, Erez, was Zionist. Helbrons continued his religious studies for the next couple of years. Then, in 1979, when he was 17, he wed Malka Azulai in an arranged marriage. 
It's likely that he and his wife, who was a recent religious convert like her new husband, moved to the Israeli city of Svat around this time. It's important to note the potentially complex effects of an arranged union like Helbron's and Malka's, especially at such a young age. Studies show cultures that support arranged marriages are often patriarchal. The man is expected to earn income, and the woman is expected to maintain the home. In this structure, the man effectively exercises control over the woman, since she has no financial recourse without the man. With no means to support herself monetarily, the wife is often unable to leave the arrangement, even if she wants to. This culture of control is something Helbrons would one day take advantage of, and that one day would get him into trouble. But for now, it simply suited his personality. He was master of his domain now, whereas before, he'd been a poor boy, master of nothing. It also meant that this forlorn only child now had a family. He and Malka went on to have three children together. After they had been married for a few years, they moved from Sfat back to the capital of Jerusalem. Then, in 1985, 23-year-old Helbrons opened his own yeshiva and declared himself a rabbi. The only problem? He had never been ordained. Coming up, Shlomo Helbrons creates the community of Lev Tahor in Jerusalem and recruits his first followers. Now, back to the story. In 1985, 23-year-old Shlomo Helbrons relocated with his wife Malka and their three children to Jerusalem. There, he started his own religious school even though he had never been ordained as a rabbi. He called it Lev Tahor, Hebrew for pure heart. The name was derived from Psalm 51.10, which states, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The Lev Tahor movement began with only 12 followers who operated out of a tiny rented apartment in the Beit Israel neighborhood of Jerusalem. This area of the city is predominantly Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox. Israel Alter was one of Lev Tahor's first members. He also served as Shlomo Helbron's first assistant. Of Helbron's, Alter said, he starts talking to you and you're attracted to him, like a magnet. I forgot where I was. A man who can read through other people and read their thoughts. Helbrons modeled many of his Lev Tahor's teachings after the Satmar Hasidic movement. Despite the similarities, though, he did not consider himself a Satmar, as he was influenced by other Hasidic movements as well. In order to recruit more followers, Helbrons gave public lectures. He also stopped people on the street. He once claimed that he convinced a secular Israeli soldier to return to religion after accosting him at a bus stop. Helbrons said, every time I got on a bus, I looked for a victim. 
These tactics display a lack of social boundaries. According to psychiatrist Dr. Abigail Brenner, people who do not understand the need for boundaries can be manipulative. It may cause them to be single-minded and uncompromising when it comes to getting what they want. Local newspapers wrote that Hellbronz had tremendous persuasive powers and was impossible to resist. Writer Haim Be'er visited Love to Horror a few times in its early days and recalled that Hellbronz was both a radical and an extremist. According to Dr. Peggy Drexler, a research psychologist and documentary filmmaker, it's possible that radicalism can be linked to mental disorders. One route to radicalism that Dr. Drexler cites is abnormal personality development during a child's early years. Hellbrowns was raised as an only child in a secular home. It's possible that the community he found in religion fulfilled some of the loneliness he felt as an only child, and therefore it pushed him towards extremism. But regardless of what fueled his radicalism, Hellbrands continued to grow his Lev Tahor community. During this period, he was mentored by Rabbi Eliezer Shlomo Schick, a prolific religious writer. Schick was a controversial figure. He was investigated for officiating underage marriages. Schick's teachings, along with Hellbrand's other influences, sustained his anti-Zionist beliefs and further cemented his strong opposition to Israel. According to him, a state for the Jews must be proclaimed by God, which cannot happen until the Messiah arrives. Also part of Hellbron's message was the destruction of Israel, which he attributed to biblical prophecies and the three vows of the Talmud. The Talmud is Judaism's central text, which is comprised of rabbis' examination of the Torah. Some strict Orthodox Jews, such as Hellbrands, interpret the three vows as follows. Not to migrate en masse and by force to the land of Israel, not to provoke the nations of the world, and not to establish independent rule. Reportedly, he not only believed Israel was evil, he believed that its culture should be outlawed. For example, Hebrew, the Zionist language, was forbidden by Hellbrands. Even though it was the first language of most of his followers, they were not allowed to teach it to their children. Hebrew was still used for prayer and the studying of religious texts, but members of Lev Tahor were only permitted to speak Yiddish in conversation. Fulfilling this anti-Zionist attitude, in 1990, 28-year-old Helbrons moved Lev Tahor from Jerusalem to the United States. By this time, he had between 20 and 30 committed followers. The community settled in Brooklyn, New York, home to some of the most influential ultra-Orthodox communities in the world. They were warmly welcomed by the local Satmar sect, especially an isolationist group called B'nai Yoel. Helbrons claimed that his anti-Zionist views were the reason for the move, and that the Torah prophesied Israel would be turned to desert and isolation. But it may have actually been an investigation into his alleged ties with the Islamic movement in Israel that prompted him to flee. The Islamic movement was spurred by the Islamic revival in the Middle East during the 1970s. It insisted on a return to the faith of Islam among Arabs in Israel. 
According to a member of Israel's security agency, Lev Tahor was communicating with sheikhs and Muslim clergy. This was the first time Haredi Jews had made contact with Muslim extremists. Helbrons claimed that he reached out to Raid Salah, a leader of the Islamic movement in Israel, for innocuous reasons. Salah was the mayor of Umal Faham, and Helbrons wanted to stop the paving of a local road over ancient Jewish graves. It's unknown when exactly this occurred, but it was possibly right before Lev Tahor relocated to the U.S. Raid Salah is known for his anti-Semitic beliefs. Is it possible that Helbron's extremist views toward Israel led him to seek out someone interested in destroying it? Ultimately, there is no way to know. However, after their hasty departure, Lev Tahor was heavily criticized in the Israeli press. Several parents of Helbron's followers accused him of kidnapping and reported him to the police in Jerusalem. But none of these potential kidnappings were investigated. All of the individuals in question were adults who were considered to have left of their own accord. Rabbi Gavriel Goldman had two brothers, Uiel and Mikael, who traveled to the States with Helbrons. He struggled to understand the reasons his siblings chose to join Lev Tahor. Goldman said, They left many things that are dear to us, the land, first of all, but also the Jewish people. To say they are right and everyone else is wrong is not the way of Judaism or the Torah. When Gavriel Goldman's brother, Uiel, joined the community in the mid-1980s, he was a teenaged officer in the Israel Defense Forces. He claimed that he was dispatched to spy on Helbron's lectures, though this assertion has never been substantiated by the IDF. Instead, Goldman became a convert himself and went on to serve as a spokesman for Helbron's and Lev Tahor. He said, we want to go backwards, exactly like original Judaism is. Helbron stated that the goal of Lev Tahor was to attain utmost purity by eliminating worldly influences, something he said distinguished them from other sects within Judaism. He preached that modernity corrupts the spirit and encouraged piety and modesty, especially for women. After his move to the U.S., he began creating an extremely regimented set of rules for his 20 to 30 followers. Members adhered to a strict kosher diet and made their food from scratch as best they could. This included abstaining from eating chickens or chicken eggs because they ran the risk of being genetically modified. In regards to other types of meat, only animals butchered under Helbron's watchful eye were deemed kosher. Skins of vegetables were not consumed, nor rice, as they could contain fungal spores or insects, respectively. Lev Tahor could not even drink milk, unless they got it from the cow themselves. Members were not allowed to decorate their homes with artwork or photographs, at most, they had candlesticks or homemade embroidery on display. In Lev Tahor, the day always began with prayer, preceded by a half hour of mystical meditation, which was reserved for the male members. 
When they prayed, it was longer and louder than other Jewish denominations. Prayers were said slowly and were often shouted. This daily ritual was mandatory and lasted several hours. Helbron's decrees also emphasized gender separation, which extended to how their children were educated. Boys began school at three years of age, initially learning the Yiddish alphabet. Within two years, they moved on to studying the book of Genesis. As teenagers, the boys' school days commenced at 7.30 in the morning and lasted until 9.30 at night. The bulk of their study was spiritual, not secular. Hours were spent examining scripture and dedicating the Jewish laws to memory. But if the boys' curriculum sounds intense, it doesn't compare to what was expected of the girls. While boys were raised to study Jewish texts, girls' education was more limited, though also more practical. They were taught how to cook, sew, and generally how to maintain a home for their husbands and children. In addition, girls were allowed to study some secular subjects, including English and math. Their teachers were all just members of the insular group, meaning they were not accredited. In fact, most of what they taught was what they had learned in Lev Tahor. To maintain Helbron's rule of gender separation, men instructed the boys and women mentored the girls. When they weren't in school, the children of the sect were permitted to occasionally play with a limited collection of toys, but even the stuffed animals had to represent kosher creatures. And once their education was completed, the girls were married off, as young as possible. Coming up, we'll continue to explore what living in the Lev Tahor community was really like. Now, back to the story. In 1991, 28-year-old Shlomo Helbrons moved his ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, Lev Tahor, from Jerusalem to New York. There, he insisted his followers live a draconian lifestyle, including arranged marriages. The members claimed that this was demanded of them by the Torah. These marriages were arranged by Helbrons himself. In most cases, the groom was much older than the bride, who was typically only 15 or 16 at the time of the wedding. It's important to note here that there is a difference between an arranged marriage and what is referred to as a forced marriage. In an arranged marriage, both spouses give consent to the union. But in a forced marriage, one or both of the parties involved have no say in whether or not they wed. According to the critics of Lev Tahor, what Helbrons was advocating were actually forced marriages, with the women suffering as victims. As young teenagers, they had no input in the choice of husband or when the marriage would occur. Studies have shown that forced marriages, unlike their arranged counterparts, can lead to many negative consequences. According to Asma Ashraf, a research nurse with University College London, forced marriage is a type of domestic violence. In the event that the victim is under 18 years of age, it's also considered child abuse. In addition to the alarming labels associated with this practice, 
forced marriage may cause psychological issues for the victim down the line. Ashraf goes on to say that individuals, like the child brides in Helbron's community, may suffer from self-harm, eating disorders, depression, substance misuse, and even genital mutilation. As for the men, who were older and more likely to give input regarding marriage, traditional employment was not necessarily encouraged. Instead, Helbrons preferred they study on a full-time basis. How the community survived then was a mystery. While members claimed that they received financial support from outside donors, they refused to specify who those donors were. Each family within Lev Tahor had their own assets and property, but all members were required to support each other if the need arose. Even though the men were not required to go to work, they still had a uniform of sorts. They dressed similarly to other ultra-Orthodox Jews, especially the Satmar Hasidic sect, which greatly influenced Helbrons. Their attire included black suits reminiscent of Polish nobility from the 18th century when Hasidic Judaism began. They also wore kippets or head coverings. As for the women, their chosen wardrobe of black burqa-like shrouds, which they began wearing at the age of three, earned Lev Tahor the nickname of the Jewish Taliban. Only their faces were exposed, while the rest of their bodies were completely covered. One of the female members claimed that the women also always covered their feet, even when they were in bed with their husbands. For one day of the week, during the celebratory period of Shabbat, the women were able to substitute their black robes for bright white ones instead. All of the males from the age of three had their heads shaved once per week. Their sideburns and beards, however, were never trimmed. The men also immersed themselves in a daily ritual bath. The water used for this purifying process must come from a natural spring or river, fresh and unadulterated. Helbron's tenets proved his position was one of complete authority. He said, everyone must negate his or her mind thoroughly and completely to the leader of Lev Tahor. They must subjugate soul, spirit, and will to the leader of Lev Tahor. Each man accepts upon his descendants and descendants' descendants until the end of all generations to be subjugated under the will of Lev Tahor's leader. He continued, everyone must be ready at any time and moment of 24 hours of the day, whether on the Shabbat and Yom Tov, summer and winter, healthy or sick, to do the will of the leader. Whether the person is a young man or an old man, virgins and women, they must accept to do the will of the leader. He must agree to throw away all his physical needs, including eating, sleep, and rest, until he fulfills the desires of the leader. Every member was also required to sign an oath of allegiance to Helbrons before they were allowed to join Lev Tahor, which is rare among Hasidic groups. These rules present Helbrons as a narcissist, or someone who has an inflated sense of his own importance, as well as a need for attention and admiration. 
According to Jody Clark, a licensed professional counselor, narcissists embellish their abilities and accomplishments, which Hellbronz did when he started calling himself a rabbi in the absence of formal ordination. Clark also says that narcissists tend to believe they're more unique, distinct, and special than they actually are. Hellbronz claimed that he possessed special insights that others in his religion weren't privy to. And as we've seen many times before, a cult is fundamentally about a central figurehead, setting himself up as infallible. Hellbronz's lengthy list of tenets fulfills this to a T, requiring that members show allegiance to him. On top of that, Hellbronz controlled all information that came in and out of his community. This extended to any and all media. Members weren't allowed to own televisions, computers, or radios. Hellbronz would only grant access to these when certain male leaders in the community asked for special permission. With this permission came the promise that technology would be used only for the betterment of Lev Tahor, including the generation of revenue. As far as their libraries were concerned, members were only allowed to stock their homes with Jewish books. Rather than study the Talmud, his followers read the Or Hashem and Derek Hatzalah, written by Helbrons himself, both of which span more than 500 pages. In these works, he emphasized obedience to authority. As the months went on in Brooklyn, the group continued to gain followers. In February of 1992, when Hellbronz was 29 years old, a young boy named Shai Fima Reuven showed up on his doorstep. Shai was accompanied by his mother, Shana, who had left Israel with her son two years prior, following her divorce from his father. At 13 years old, Shai was only a couple of months away from his bar mitzvah, a religious coming-of-age ceremony for Jewish boys. Shana wanted Helbrons to prepare her son for this momentous rite of passage in his life. By the following week, Shai was studying and sleeping at Helbrons' yeshiva four days of the week. When Lev Tahor threw a bar mitzvah party for Shai, it was well attended. Afterward, with Shana's approval, her son stayed at Helbrons' yeshiva full-time. For an entire month. It didn't take long for Shai to fall under the spell of Helbronz and his followers. Before Shana knew it, her son wanted nothing to do with his former life. Rather than live with her and attend a secular school, Shai wanted to remain at the yeshiva long term. His mother refused, not wanting her son to join the ultra-Orthodox community. But Shana, who was staying at a shelter for battered women at the time, had little control over her fiery offspring. Much as Helbrons had done in his youth, Shai ran away several times to return to Lev Tahor. Then, in April of 1992, 13-year-old Shai Fima Reuven vanished into thin air, and his mother, Shana, pointed the finger at Rabbi Shlomo Helbrons. Even worse, Shai wouldn't be the last child to go missing while under the tutelage of Lev Tahor. Dozens more 
would follow. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Lev Tahor. We'll cover the group's alleged kidnapping and child abuse. For more information on Lev Tahor, amongst the many sources we used, we found a two-part article by Shea Fogelman entitled, Pure as the Driven Snow or Hearts of Darkness. Extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Cults was written by Andrea Vasillo, with writing assistance by Drew Cole and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>